Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events, and there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself. But thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. It's that moment that the McDermott's realised that Sarah had been on the train and that something had happened. Well, last week I interviewed Vicky Petratus and we got distracted talking about other crimes rather than the one we'd actually planned on talking about. But I've got to tell you, it was so interesting. I just couldn't stop listening to Vicky. Uh, Vicky's a crime writer, a true crime podcaster, and she's written uh, 16 books at this stage, I believe. And that's what we talked a lot about last week was her bestseller, the Frankston murders. That was a young man by the name of Paul Denyer that murdered, that we know of, three uh, young women. We also talked a little bit about Paul Dale, the ex-Victorian detective, whose name just keeps coming up in serious crime investigations. So I uh, gave Vic a bit of a hard time about him. But what we're going to do today is we're going to do our best to talk about Sarah McDermott. Sarah was a young woman who went missing from the southeastern suburbs and she got off a train and basically vanished off the face of the earth. But Vicky knows this investigation very, very well. She's done a lot of research on it. So I thought today I'll just leave it up to Vicky other than to say, I'm not sure if I said last week, but I come from around that area. I grew up in Edith Vale. So I don't know about the listeners, but when you are familiar with a place where somebody's gone missing, it just brings it that little bit closer to home. I don't know how many times I caught the train home, you know, from working in the city and I got off at Edithvale and Cannonook isn't really all that far from Edithvale. And I think a lot of us, um, we have been on public transport, we've been on trains where you get off and you're just sort of, I don't know, just sometimes you get that sixth sense that something isn't right. Who knows what happened on this night? But let's reintroduce Vicky. And Vicky, that's what I'm going to try and start off talking about is Sarah McDermott tonight. <laughs> we'll give it our best shot. <laughs> How do you reckon we'll go? Uh, I don't know. I'll give it a 50-50 chance, Narelle. <laughs> 
Oh, and really, um, it, no, it's no laughing matter, is it? It's, we're just laughing. Yeah. At poor Sarah and, well, poor her parents. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that is, that is no laughing matter. So, Vicky, thanks for returning, but I thought you would because we, uh, we didn't stop last week and I can't see why this week's going to be any different. But could you, you've been doing a lot of research with Sarah and her, what happened to her. So can you take us through what happened and what you think's happened and what you've uncovered? Yeah. Um, Sarah McDermott is one of those cases that all of us, uh, that, and I lived in that area too, um, I don't know, we just never forget. It's the one, I think it's something to do with the case that's not solved and that notion that a woman can vanish into thin air. And I just think when we don't get an answer, we are left forever to wonder. And that's sort of what I've spent the last year of my life researching. Uh, so basically the story around Sarah McDermott was that she uh, caught the train home from the city. She worked in the city and she played tennis at the tennis centre with some buddies after work and then hopped on the train, arrived. The friends got off at Bond Beach, so two stations before Cannonall. She got there at about 20 past 10. And a lot of people, there's a lot of people on the platform, there's a lot of people in the area, and people saw her getting off the train and they saw her walking up the ramp. Cannonall has a platform, like uh, the platform is in the middle and so you have to walk up a ramp and then across an overpass to get to it. Um, and so they saw her walking up the, the platform and as one of the detectives said, she virtually just disappears into the night. A lot of people in the area heard screams. There was a woman who was walking up the ramp and she was at the top of the overpass. She thought she heard someone call out, uh, stop fooling around, give me back my keys. And then she heard a quick scream and then Sarah was gone. And so her poor family, Peter and Sheila and Sarah's brother Alistair, were at home waiting for her. And, and she was so regular in her hours that when she's not home by 10.30, they're saying, hey, Sarah's always home by 10.30 and, and you know, where could she be? And so the, the whole family just sort of sat around getting more fearful and then could she have stayed with a friend? Could she have got caught out? You know, what could possibly have happened? And so Alistair ends up driving down to the, they look at the train timetable, he drives down to Cannanook for the last train, and uh, which was at about one o'clock, and he drives into the car park. There's nobody else in the car park but Sarah's car is there and he drives home. And then it's not until, I mean, that the family spent, the, her parents spent a really panicked night and pretty much the next morning, uh, you know, they're up at like 5.30 and, and Peter said he would go to work but to ring him as soon as they heard. And um, so Sheila rang Sarah's work and it's not until literally she's sort of ringing like three times before. They said ring back at nine and she just kept trying. And then finally at nine o'clock, um, the two people who she'd caught the train home with walk into work and uh, so Sheila's on the phone and they said, look, Mrs McDermott, um, you know, the two people that she caught the train with and got off at Bond Beach, they've just walked in and they caught the train home with her. Oh. And she, I know Sheila just describes that moment. She said, I hardly even remember. I remember screaming and just dropping the phone and it's that moment that the McDermott's realised that Sarah had been on the train and that something had um, something had happened, and that she had just vanished. And it just—I don't know. If, uh, you would have seen this too, Narelle. You just—you just hear these stories of these girls that don't come home, and you hear the families of, you know, look. Oh, she's she'll be home soon, or maybe she stayed with a friend, or what could have happened. But the problem, of course, with Sarah was that she was the kind of person would ring even though she was um you know she certainly wasn't a child she was 23 but she was the kind of person who would ring and she had rung a couple of months earlier she'd got 
asked to stay over with a friend because it was foggy and the friend's mom said, no, 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 you're not to drive home in the fog. And she did ring her parents at quarter to 12. Like she would wake them up in the middle of the night so they wouldn't worry. So I think that, you know, just the family's trying to convince themselves that nothing's happened and then the next morning they find out that she was on that train. So where was she? And um, so I, I suppose the good part of that is that they – the parents were on to the police straight away. So they had rung the police. The police were rounded the McDermott's by 10 o'clock that morning. Um, so this is Thursday the 12th of July 1990 and then they're taking the report. They go straight to the CIB and uh, the CIB uh, took it seriously, I think because the McDermott's were such lovely people and it was, it was almost like there was no, there was no, um, suggestion that they were the a type of family that could have had a fight with her or that might have chased her off. Like they were such a lovely family and they were just so distressed. And luckily uh, the police went to this, the car park straight away and the CIB detectives went to the car park from Frankston. And what they found is they found drag marks uh, they sort of looked under cars and because by that time the next morning the car park was full again and they found drag marks like somebody had dragged her, uh, like held her under the arms and dragged her by the feet, uh, sorry, by under the arms but dragged her feet along the ground into the nearby bushes that separated the car park from the road and there was a considerable amount of blood in the soil there. And so there was a bit of blood on her car. So what it looked like straight away was that she had walked to, got to her car and somebody had inflicted some sort of wound injury, quite possibly a knife wound, um, and that Sarah had been dragged into the bushes. But the real mystery, I mean, that's where it started. So there was nothing left except for a lighter that had the name of a cafe uh, just at the bottom of Sarah's building in the city. So they knew that that was probably a lighter that belonged to her. Sarah was a smoker, and but there was nothing else left. So whoever took her has attacked her at her car. She's carrying a tennis racket, uh, a handbag, a backpack, and her keys, and they've dragged her into the bushes, but then they've taken her and everything else. So because they haven't taken her car, which is really odd because if the woman did hear, stop fooling around, give me back my keys, then that means that somebody may have had Sarah's, if that was Sarah, that somebody actually had her keys in their hand. But they've ignored her car, left her in the bushes, which seems to me a little bit kind of risky oh, because. Odd, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then gone so they've arrived on foot gone to get their own car and transported her away and so it's just you know one of these mysteries that uh what on earth happened that night in the car park now two days later uh, a well-known drug addict with with a with a fairly big criminal history uh called Jody Jones started telling people that she did it so she's sort of telling her friends, oh, you know that thing at Cannondalk? Yeah, that was me. It, it usually came with some sort of approach for money. So it was usually, oh, you know that 100 bucks you owe me or I need money to get away. Um, and she told a lot of people that she was involved. And so very, very quickly uh, the police zeroed in on Jodie Jones um, and and the investigation really centred on her. Um, looking back through, you know, studying this case for a year, I feel like nobody saw Jodie Jones at the station. I feel like there were a lot of uh, people that were seen at the station, men, so people like single men uh, were seen around the vicinity and uh, Jodie Jones said that she was there with two guys or one guy or three guys, depending on who she was talking to. She never named the guys and she said, oh, no, they've gone to Queensland now. They'll, I'm worried they won't stay staunch. But this was when she was telling everyone. And so the police very quickly narrowed in on, on Jodie and, um, and 
sort of when she questioned, they questioned her, she was very savvy. So she had been in prison for murder before, mm, or manslaughter. Okay, right. Uh, she killed a guy when she was, she had killed a guy, she was a state ward, and the judge in her trial said, this is one of the most disturbing case histories I've ever read. So Jody had been uh, raped at 11 by a gang of men. She was a state ward. She was a drug addict. She was uh, working as a sex worker from the time she was 15. Her, her history, just there was no hope really for her. Um, when she was released from being a state ward on her 18th birthday, uh, the report pretty much said, we'll do what we can for Jodie, but she won't live very long. Like even the social workers knew that her life expectancy was pretty much zero. And uh, But anyway, 13 days after she turned 18, um, a guy was walking, you know, Shakespeare Grove at the back of Luna Park and oh, there's yeah. sort of a, yep. a, a parking bay. You, you probably know it really well because I'm sure that uh, in the day that was a, a, well, it was an area known as the Beat. And so she was hanging out there with a bunch of mates and uh, a guy called James Halkett walked through and she's, she yelled something at him. There's various uh, descriptions of what she yelled. Someone said that she'd seen uglier heads on a beer or something. You know, it was, I don't know what it was exactly, but, um, and he's basically told her to bugger off. And she's just gone up and just started punching into him. And he's trying to defend himself by pushing her and then all of her mates. So this is back in 1983, stop hitting our chick. And they all raced over and four teenagers, Jody included, beat this guy to death. Um, and it was really brutal. They just didn't stop. And uh, his injuries were, you know, all of his ribs were broken and they stomped on his head and 30, 40, 50 times. Like it wasn't just a... Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and she was described by all the witnesses as being the most violent. Oh, really? And, okay. um, and of course, they're caught. They're caught the next day because everybody knew who they were. So everybody, as soon as the police got there, they're like Jody Jones and they just rattled off the names of all these people. And um, so, I mean, people said that she was on drugs at the time, uh, that she was remorseful. Some people felt she wasn't. There's a bit of... Uh, Differing opinions there, but uh, they all went to jail. Like they're all charged with murder, and then they it was bargained down to manslaughter, and they all got uh, twelve years with a ten year minimum. And that's, um, pretty, that's a pretty stiff. Like, like it's very. Um, I think it's warranted. Yeah, but. That's um, a fairly good sentence for a murder. I mean, I know that it's 25 years and very rarely people get 25 years, but even, I mean, I know it's a shock to people that aren't in the justice system, but you very rarely get anyone that does 25 years. But 10 or 12, uh, what is it, 12 with a 10 on the bottom or something, that's a... 12 with a 10, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is horrifying really because I don't, I still don't get it. No, but... But despite the 10-year minimum, she only served seven. And so she was released at the end of 1989. She re-offended, so she broke her parole um, parameters and was put back in, and then they let her out again in February 1990. So it's one of those cases where if she had have actually served her 10-year minimum, she would, would have still been in jail when Sarah McDermott went missing, and it couldn't have been her, but... Uh, just, you know, the way that the law works, she was out just in time for, for Sarah to disappear in the July. And so... I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to clarify something here before we go on, Vicky, is that I feel like I need to make mention of the fact that you said you'd know Shakespeare Grove very well, Narelle, because yeah. of it's the beat in St Kilda. I worked there yeah. as a policewoman. There's no other reason why I would know that beat. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> I knew the beat because I was a working girl or so. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just want to clarify. Well, you were working there, but as a, a police officer. <laughs> Thank you, Narelle, because I'm sure. I just Thank you. <laughs> all of your listeners have immediately said, wow, Narelle was working the beat. Um, yeah, the, I actually interviewed many, many years ago when I was writing a, the book that I wrote on um, 
on pedophiles with Chris O'Connor from the Child Exploitation Squad, I had interviewed a lot of detectives uh, who worked, including Neil Comrie, the Chief Commissioner back then, uh, at the Delta Task Force. Now, Delta was set up in uh, the early 80s, well, around about this time, to see just how prevalent child sex working was in St Kilda. And so when I went back to the public records office and got the James Halkett file and the homicide file, and they kept mentioning Delta detectives, and I thought, ah, I wonder if uh, those cops that I interviewed years ago, like back in 1998 it would have been, I wonder if they had have known Jodie. If they... So anyway, I got in touch with a couple of them, and they're like, yeah, Jodie, we knew. And they were all called out on the night. So they were working the beat too, but in the same capacity that you were, that they were all called out to the beat to work the, jo- the James Helcott job because it was teenagers. So the minute that it was like a bunch of street kids had beaten someone to death, all the Delta detectives. So I ended up finding people who uh, worked, not the beat, but, you know, who worked in the St Kilda area who knew Jodie and that was a real, really interesting for them to uh, talk about her as if she was a really sad kind of tragic figure. And I, I know that that's really hard. What she did was, and I said in the, in the podcast that I'm making, she was broken but broken women can break others and that's exactly what she did and I don't think we can ever ignore there's plenty of people that have, have suffered in their childhood and that don't do that. Uh, but one of the detectives felt that it was a combination of just being off her face on drugs um, and out of control and really angry. Uh, and it's interesting, in one of the statements, um, someone heard her say uh, to James Helcott, because he was walking through the beat, so he was 46, he, he, I think he looked a lot older, and and sh- someone heard her uh, maybe call out a homosexual slur and about half an hour earlier, one of her mates had hopped into a car with a bloke and driven off for 20 minutes and then was dropped back, and she kicks the door of the car as the guy drives off. So one can conclude, I think fairly correctly, that her friend would have gone off uh, as a sex worker. And uh, just her anger at these men that preyed on her and her friends, I suppose, and that sort of made sense that when James Helcott walked through the beat, and if she had, if what she did in fact call out was a homosexual slur, then it made sense that maybe she was just feeling really angry with the world. But you know, teens feeling angry is one thing, but literally beating and kicking a guy to death who's just walking through the area oh, yeah. is is quite another. And um, that, that takes it that takes it to another le- another level. But yeah. I think one of the issues with um, investigating anything in an area like St Kilda and for uh, listeners that aren't aware of uh, St Kilda in Melbourne, in Victoria, uh, back in the 90s and 80s when I was working there. Um, they, as a police officer. Uh, as a police, thank you for clarifying <laughs> that, Vicky. I feel we've clarified that enough. <laughs> okay. Just in case. <laughs> but uh, back then it was just the capital for uh, drug addicts, for sex workers. If ever you wanted, if there was a man that wanted um, a prostitute of any kind, um, you know, or a night with a woman, you would always uh, find one in St Kilda. It was just, you know, it was like the King's Cross of Sydney really. But... And the problem with an investigation in an area like that, and I'm sure the same thing would happen with um, with uh, Jodie Jones, is that you get a lot of people who won't come forward because then, you know, the, the men that are what we call the gutter crawlers and the, the men that are looking for sex, they might be, you know, tell their wife that they're, I don't know, they're working that night or whatever it be, but they don't come forward because then their secret is out that, you know, they're they're, um, paying for sex or whatever. So, gee, it makes it difficult when you ask for people to come forward in a situation like that. Yeah. I I guess what happened with uh, the night James Halkett died was that it was a summer night, so it was in February, and 
it was a night where half of the witnesses were neighbours that had just got home and were going for a walk and they were going out to get a coffee. There was a whole bunch of people that had parked in that area and that was kind of a meeting place. There were people dropping people off. So there were people that just came from everywhere and they all knew, like, well, the ones that were parked there knew Jodie Jones and the, the three other guys that um, – and some of them even tried to intervene. So there's one guy in his statement, he runs over and he starts punching at the people that were punching James Holcott and then they've kneed him in the groin. So he's sort of limped away and just hopped in the car and driven off to try and find police to stop it. Um, but so it, I think it was so public and it was just in front of everyone. And... Um, And so there was a host of witnesses, like there were literally, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 witnesses that went, yeah, right in front of us. And um, and then the the, the kids were picked up. Uh, Jodie was picked up later that night. The boys were picked up later that the next day. And they they all just were put into prison and they got this sentence. I don't know when the guys got out, but Jodie was certainly out by February 1990. So... When I was talking to police about this years and years ago uh, when I was writing the Frankston book, uh, they talked about it. They described it as the stiletto murders, so the, the kind of the urban myth went around that Jodie had jumped on James Halkett. I heard at Luna Park and in stilettos, and I thought, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> but she wasn't. She was barefoot, and it wasn't at, in Luna Park. It was... Um, at, at the back. But I guess what strikes you about this whole James Helcott murder was that Jodie was the instigator and she was female. And I'm thinking that that's not common. You would know much more than what I, but I'm thinking that sort of women as the instigator in a deadly murder um, of such ferociousness. Yeah. yeah, very rare. It does happen, but it's rare. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened with Jodie and uh, her as a suspect, how did she get, did she get eliminated or how did that well, happen? Yeah. See, the, he, here's the problem and this continues to be a problem to this day. So Jodie told everyone that she did it. She was questioned by uh, police and she she was savvy because she'd been in prison for seven years. So she just basically said, uh, everyone that says that I did it, that I told them that I did it, they're just lying. Uh, it's all just bullshit. <laughs> And she, you know, she was not she was not a shrink violet in that interview. She uh, held her own and basically um, told the police to go bugger off. Like she was very, very forthright. And so they all they had was that she had told other people, but of course, all the stories that she told were different. But when you go into the that world of ex-cons and drug addicts and so everything that she said had to be followed up and then everyone that she spoke to had a story that included four other people and then they had to be chased up. And um, and then what happened, and this really muddied the waters, I don't think it normally does, but because of the audience. So they very quickly um, in the state government, they offered a $50,000 award and then I think somebody, uh, might have even been the place Sarah worked at, I'm not sure, had had put another $25,000 on top of that. So what you had was that you had this $75,000 reward and you had drug addicts as the main uh, series of potential witnesses. And so one woman even came forward and said, oh, yeah, I was in the car park that night and Jodie was there and we were talking. She went off to mug a girl there was screaming. Jody came over and said, "She's dead. We've killed her." And then I just, you know, went off. But Jody definitely did it. And then, you know, the statement starts with, "My last hit of heroin was at midday today," and then it ends with a second statement saying, "I made it up to get the reward money." So you had this really muddy water uh, surrounding this these hordes of people that came forward within Jody's circles with stories that were later to, were proven that she couldn't have been there that night, um, that they were they were made by drug addicts. So Jodie was re-arrested. But, but, they, um, but, but they, sorry, but they can, those sort of um, uh, oh, avenues of inquiry, they can take you off on tangents yeah. that take weeks and weeks to try and... 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And sort out who's telling the truth, um, you know, and... As you say, there's four people that have seen it and then there's another four that have uh, heard something. And as a rule, the problem with um, drug, ad- drug addicts in particular is that they're so unreliable because their their memory is so unreliable. And you know what? They may have seen something, but they don't like to get them in a witness box. Yeah. It is a nightmare. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. This woman that came forward, she came forward in the December. So, of course, um, Sarah goes missing in the July. So, in the December, she comes forward. So, trying then to get her alibi. Mm. So, you're months behind. It's crazy. It's it's crazy. So it takes months to figure out that she's in fact lying and then she makes another statement saying, I just made it up because I wanted the reward money. There was also with Sarah, uh, Jodie had told some people that she had uh, so that they put her in a car. Um, so none of it accounted for the blood that was in the bushes. So in all of her accounts, oh, yeah, we stabbed her and put her in the car and drove her off. One person, she said, oh, we heard moaning from the back of the car, so we opened it and then I finished her off. Some people, she said, they put her in a dump master or a dumpster. Some people that she buried her in sand at the beach. Uh, so, so none of the stories made sense. There was no continuity. Um, but, of course, there was also the kind of possibility that if she had have been put into a dumpster and it was at Cannonock Railway Station is near an industrial area, that Sarah could have ended up at the tip. The, the problem, again, with that was that when I talked to the lead detective, Laurie Ratz, he said, well, they by the time they found out that Sarah had, was missing, they're already, you know, if she goes missing at 20 past 10 Wednesday night, by Thursday morning and then early afternoon when the CIB are there, they find the blood, they go, right, something's wrong. Some of the dumpsters in the area had already been emptied. And when they went down to the Frank's tip to find out just where these dumpsters would have been emptied, and he said it was the area of the MCG and it was like three metres deep. And he said it was just impossible because there was no evidence that that did in fact happen. And they just couldn't afford at that early stage to put all of their resources into searching the tip when there was no evidence. And I don't know, I I used to work at a school where we had a dumpster and it was always locked. So my first thought was that if you've got a dumpster that's in an area where anyone can access, 
they're always locked. So I feel like the dumpster theory, but again, that took a lot of time. They had to go to every single factory in the area. Do you have a dumpster? Is it in public uh, reach? Was it emptied? Um, you know, so there was just so much to search. Um, they did know right from the start that Sarah hadn't wandered off because that's always you get a missing person, you get blood. Could she have wandered off? Everyone wants them to have wandered off because if they wandered off, then you can find them and they're okay. But there was no blood anywhere but from the car to the um, garden bed and then that was it. So no one had carried her off and um, and so, it's, it, you know, the, the conclusion has to be that somebody went and got a car. And this is really interesting because one of the main witnesses at the time uh, was a, a father and, and 12-year-old daughter had gone up to the Cannonook Railway Station and they were standing opposite. They were walking their dogs. They stood opposite the railway station and they were waiting for the mum, of the, the wife and the mum, to meet them. She was walking from Frankston. Her car had broken down and she caught the bus to work and there was no bus to bring her home. So she she was uh, meeting them. They were going to meet halfway at Cannonook. So the father and the daughter were waiting at Cannonook and they heard screaming coming from the car park right after Sarah's train had come in. And the minute the screaming started, their dog started barking so they didn't really hear much from then. Then the mother arrives. Then they start walking back past the car park. They're just about to go over the overpass, if you know Cannonock, over the overpass onto Wells Road. And they see a guy coming out of the car park. Now, both the mother and the daughter were really clear in their statements. They said the guy looked worried. He was looking down. He was trying to, it was like they both got the feeling that he was trying to avoid eye contact. So they both had actually made an identicate. They'd, they'd gone and done a police identicate and that identicate was never released. Now, because I guess, like one, um, they didn't, Charlie Bazina said to me, he goes, well, if you release an identicate, then everybody that's reading it goes, oh, that must be the guy that did it. And, of course, by then Jody Jones had come onto the scene. So I suppose the last thing they want to do is release the identicate of a man if Jody Jones was the main suspect, and she was very quickly. So the public never got to see this identicate So it was never in the paper. And I just feel like I really want to see, the police won't show it to me, but I would really like to see that identicate because if it wasn't Jodie Jones and nobody saw her in all the witness statements, there's a lone man in the car park leaning on the fence that he was seen by a taxi driver. There's a guy with a briefcase walking down the ramp behind Sarah who was never, never came forward. So there's a lot of people around but I figure if it wasn't Jodie and her gang of one, maybe two, maybe three guys that no one knows and that ne- never came forward, could this man that, that was seen by this mother and daughter, could he have been, could he be a suspect? And I just, I don't know, just for the sake of the McDermott's, because the minute that I wanted to do this, they were the first people I rang. I just rang Peter and Sheila. I have met up with them over the years and, um, you know, we've sort of kept in touch on and off. And I just rang them and I said, look, Peter and Sheila, I'd really like to do a podcast on Sarah because let's, at the 30th anniversary, just let's give it one last big worldwide push. And they said, all right. And so it's a blog, is it? And I said, no, it's a podcast. And they didn't really know what that was. And I had to explain. (laughs) And they just said, look, anything, anything that can potentially give Sarah another go, you know, because... I remember Sheila saying to me many years ago, she said, she said, I know all of these new girls like Jill, and she was talking about Jill, Jill Mar. Yeah. Uh, all of these new girls like Jill, she goes, look, I know they have to be investigated, but every time a new one happens, I feel like Sarah gets pushed into the background. And I felt like saying to her, look, Sheila, Sarah is so far into the background. I think at that stage, it would have been 20, 25 years. And and I just, I think that the parents, are, this is as almost as raw for them as, as it is for, uh, you know, today as it ever was, just to not know and just, 
even spending a couple of hours with them and you just you just go, how do you do that? How do you just go on when your daughter just one day she was there, oh, my God, and then one day she was just gone. How do you even how do you even come to terms with that? And the problem with Sarah, of course, is that because she's never found, they never refer to her. I noticed this very early on and I tried to do it in the podcast. They never refer to her as being uh, deceased. So, you know, they, they, they'll say things like, uh, Sheila said to me, she said, look, I know that, I know that she probably is. But then very quickly she goes, oh, but here are these girls that are locked in a basement for 30 years and then they're released. So you just never know, do you? So there's always that heartbreaking inability. I know. And all of her friends are the same. And one friend actually said to me, she said, I don't want to know what happened to her because if I know, then it's over. And, and there is always that glimmer of hope. And, and another friend said, uh, you know, there's a girl at the, I go to Coles and there's a girl that I just look at her and I go, gee, that's what Sarah would look like now. Could that yeah. be Sarah? Oh. And so you are always still looking for her in a crowd, Breaking even subconsciously. Oh, it is um, heartbreaking. Vicky, was there ever any other suspects identified? Not really at the time. Um, there was a bunch of really stupid young men who, for whatever reason, I don't understand this, but they would try and uh, impress young women in the area by saying, oh, that's Sarah McDermott, that was me. And, of course, instead of being impressive, the girls were just scared, they rang the police. So there's a whole lot of statements in the, the brief that that are from men saying, oh, I was just trying to boast, I didn't do it. And it's just like, why would you even... Why would you even say that? But anyway, um, so the, the police looked at a lot of people, but, of course, this was three years before the Frankston serial killings happened. And um, I, I feel, and I've always said this, I feel like Denya, who was 18 at the time, I feel like he was stalking women in the area. He'd wanted to kill since he was 14. He told the police in his interview that he had been stalking since he was 17. I've interviewed people in the area that had been followed by him. And I just, I wonder if the police were stringent enough in looking really carefully at him. Because just for the listeners, uh, Frankston and Cannonook are virtually like there might be a couple of kilometres between both um, areas, but I can't imagine him not being sort of up the top of the list of other, you know, similar. Like when something like that happens, you always look at any similar incidents that have happened in the area. Um, so I would find it hard to believe that the police, and you've, and you've said before that the police, um, you know, that you got a, they, Mr and Mrs McDermott, they got a great response from the police and the CIB. I can't imagine them not looking. I would think as a detective that's one of the first things you look at, you know, somebody that has been recently released from jail, somebody that's, um, uh, you know, been behaving suspiciously. uh, Like you'd look at that as a priority and I can't imagine the local police not looking at Denya because it's certainly – like he's in the area, he's got the, he's, you know, wanted to kill since he was however old, 14, 16, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you'd have to look. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Well, but the thing was that because Sarah was 1990, uh, Frankston's serial killings are 1993, yep. they hadn't happened yet. No, but you still so- go back. Like even in 1993 when Denya had, uh, or 94, whenever he was charged, you'd have to go back surely, I would think, and look at other unsolved cases in and around that area, I, I think that would be a, a normal avenue of inquiry to look at, well, okay, what have we got that hasn't been solved in this area, I don't know, over the last five years, say, something like that. Yeah. I, I'd be surprised if they didn't. Look, here's what happened. In his police interview, Denya denies doing anything for about six or seven hours. And then they say, we're going to take a break, we're going to take your DNA 
He then says to uh, Darren O'Loughlin, one of the detectives in the break, he said, they'll be able to prove that I did it. And Darren says, look, you know, they'll just take your DNA, Paul. And he goes, all right, I did it. I did all three of them. So Darren O'Loughlin kind of goes, okay, we need to get back into the interview room and we need to call Rod oh Wilson God. back to continue the now? interview. I've had a confession. <laughs> you know, so it was yeah. that sort of panicked, yeah. get him back in there. And so they ask him. So then he's being interviewed. So they've pretty much had him for most of the day, all night. And then right at the end of the interview, Rod Wilson, in a moment where I think Rod has forgotten Sarah's name because Rod probably wouldn't have slept, I reckon, for about 48 hours. They were absolutely exhausted or on a complete high because they've just got a confession. And so Rod Wilson turns to him and he says, you know that girl at Cannonook and Paul, so this is, he should have been exhausted too. Paul said, Sarah McDermott, yeah, no, I didn't do that. And Rod, Rod sort of says, oh, okay, um, what do you know about it? And he goes, oh, just from what I've read in the paper. And then Paul says, oh, and that brown girl, I didn't do that either. Now he's talking about Michelle Brown who was found murdered behind the Frankston gun shop in 1992. So here's Paul at a time when he should have been pretty stressed. He's remembering off the top of his he's, head. He's in the ballpark, isn't he? He remembers Sarah McDermott and he remembers Michelle Brown. And so uh, that was never solved either. And as you said before, you could, Laurie says it in the pod, in my podcast, he says you could throw a net over this, this whole the Frankston murder. So you've got Seaford Station where he tries to take Rosa Toth. He hops on the train and hops off at Cannonook. You literally hop, come down the ramp and cross the road is McCulloch Avenue. That's where he walked and saw Debbie, caught Debbie Freem at the McCulloch Avenue milk bar. Um, if you go on the other side of the bridge is uh, comes the other side of the overpass comes out onto Quinn Street. That links up with Claude Street. That's where he attacks the cats. That's his first. Uh, that's his first um, crime in the February. Was he broke into a woman's uh, house called Donna Vane's, and she's not home, and he kills her cats. Uh, and he later confesses to that. He says, "I would have killed her," and he just said because he hated her and her. He hated her sister. Her sister lived in the same block of units that she did. And um, so, and then on the other side of the freeway is the golf course, and then that's where Natalie died. So literally, if you look at one page of the Melways, it's all there. And Cannonock is the epicenter of this. And um, and I've spoken to another woman who was followed from Cannonock a month before Sarah went missing. So there's lots of evidence that there was a single young man following women around that time. But I feel like, and I could be wrong. But I feel like the police, this is the common answer that I get. It's like, why do you think he had nothing to do with it? Why are you so sure? And I get this, we asked him and he said no. That's the standard response. Yeah, and I don't believe that the police would take that as, um, okay, you've said you didn't do it, well, let's move on. I would think that behind the scenes there would have been um, maybe an analyst or something trying to, um, I don't know, uh, connect the dots or um, I, I can't believe just by a um, an offender saying no that you'd just leave it at that. I wouldn't know a detective that would do that. But I'm just thinking back a couple of things you've said there. Number one is the fact that um, he, uh, Denya, is killing cats is um, odd, uh, uh, an identifying um oh, what would you call it, Um, behavioural trait of a sex offender. Why? I don't know. I think it's probably about power. But also, as a sex offender, you wouldn't need to be Einstein to think that you are going to find a lot of or a number of single women in those days. Back in 90, it's a different world to today. You'd get a lot of women coming off, single women or women that are alone, coming off a train, and the fact that they are all in that one area, um, to me, I can't imagine the police just, oh, well, you didn't do it, okay. Really, I just can't see it. I think the other side of that, Narelle, is that they then follow that up with, we asked him and he said no, 
And since he confessed so freely to everything else, why wouldn't he? So that 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 was the logic. So I'm not saying. Can I can I, can I um, interrupt there? Because he's tired, just like the police. He's no different to anybody else. He's tired. If he says yes, I look. This is just obviously, you know, we're just throwing yeah. this around. But yeah. he could. He would be very tired as well. And if he confess, if he said, well, yes, I did that. Well, then it would be more. It would be hours of um, further questioning, although, and I don't know if he would know that, you know, you can say I'm tired and you have to, you know, have a certain amount of rest and everything, but in the in the moment I wouldn't, you know, if he did do it, I could be, uh, I would be very surprised if he said yes because he's just spent all this time telling about Debbie Freem and uh, the other young women that got, that he killed. So it would mean another, well, I don't know, five or six hours at the absolute you know, that's at the least amount of time. And then they'd go, you know, have to go back to the crime scenes and I don't think he'd be thinking, oh, they'll allow me to have a bit of a sleep and then I can tell them about it in the morning or whatever. So even though, yeah, with the police are tired, the the um, offender would be as well. That's just one of, you know, one reason I could think of. Yeah. He... Um... Yeah, he, he seemed quite chipper in the interview. He's incredibly helpful. It, it seemed to me the minute that he confessed, uh, he was quite uh, boastful, like he was really in his element. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one uh, bit where he he's talks about burying Debbie Frame's purse and they said, oh, we, do you know where to find it? He goes, yeah, I'll find it. You know, there was that attitude of I don't even know how to describe it. It was yeah, don't you worry about that. I'll find it. Like I'm the master of finding the, you know, trophies that I've buried. Uh, but, you know, he, at the same time, I think he was very cagey in that interview. It seemed like he was very candid. Uh, but when you look back and when you take the time, he doesn't admit really important things like he says um, Elizabeth had markings carved into her chest and they said, now, Elizabeth had, had these markings. Do you remember doing them? And he goes, no. Nah. And they said, so you don't remember doing them. Would it have been you? And he goes, well, if they were there, it would have been me, but I don't remember. And it's like, oh, no, that's that was part of your signature and you put a lot of thought into that and you know exactly why those marks were there. You're just choosing not to tell. So I felt he was very selective and so did the uh, detectives, one of the local detectives, uh, knew him in the area and uh, had actually had this strange run-in with Paul where Paul had been had arrived home in an ambulance and he'd made the ambulance bring him to his home. He went inside. He'd been stabbed in the leg and he didn't want the ambulance to take him to hospital. He wanted his brother to drive him because he wasn't an ambulance member and he thought that he would get charged many hundreds of dollars. So his brother had driven him to the Frankston Hospital. They had treated this stab wound. Uh, the local detective who worked on the cats, who worked on Frankston, Cole Clark, he went to Frankston and interviewed Denya and Denya refused to make a complaint about it. So he'd obviously been doing something wrong or maybe stalking someone and they'd found him in their garden or whatever, but whatever it was, he didn't want to make a complaint. Of course, he had told his family that, oh, those coppers aren't doing anything. They're not going to find out who did this. And his family never knew that he had told the police, don't investigate it. I'm not going to make a complaint. And so Cole Clark had had this run in. So he knew that Denny was up to whatever he was up to a long time before uh, this, this, these murders were happening. And I just feel like, uh, you know, police, uh, Ron, Ronnie Dool says in his book that he had heard the rumours as well. He went into prison. Paul was female identifying then, so he went into prison to visit Paula and he said to him, did you do it? Ron doesn't say why. He was convinced that he didn't, didn't but he said, I'm convinced that he was telling the truth. And then, he, you know, Paula wrote to him and said, thanks for your honesty, Um because Ron had told the Herald Sun that. And it just seemed, and in the podcast, and I'm not going to do a spoiler alert, but in the podcast I've got someone uh, who had a very, very different experience uh, with with Paul 
And um, so while he was very um, compliant with male detectives and he could sense the pecking order, uh, I interview a woman who had a very, very different experience. Mm. And so I can't help but (laughs) wonder, yeah, the, the women... Uh, even the doctor that saw him on the night, one of the detectives said to me that the minute she walked in, his whole demeanour, this helpful, compliant, yeah, anything you want to know, and he just said if looks could kill, she would have been dead. Oh, and even she noted that in her and, and he looked, just looked at her and went, I'm a serial killer. And just this cop said to me, I'll never forget it, he said it was like if you guys weren't here, I would tear her to shreds. So that there were glimpses that the police got, but they pretty much got the compliance side of him. Women and his victims got a very different sides. So, uh, the, and there's a story that I think will make everyone gasp in horror at maybe what was believed when male detectives were talking to him and then what other women experienced yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Vicky, uh, I suppose we're going to have to, uh, I, uh, as I said last week, I could listen to you all day, but but I suppose we'll have to um uh, start to wind up, but I'm just wondering. So, what was it about Sarah's uh, disappearance that interested you to the point where you would um, go into it like you have, and you know, write the book and do the podcast? Tell me about what it was that sort of hooked you in. I think I had mentioned Sarah just in any exploration of the Frankston murders. Sarah and Michelle have to get a mention. And I think it was then meeting, uh, so after the book came out, Sarah's dad rang me and he said, oh, you know, so you think that he might have had something to do with Sarah? And I said, well, I think it should be looked into. And so over the years we've sort of had, I did a library talk and they live in the country and and they came, they were front row of my library talk and and they started to introduce themselves and I said, oh, no, I know who you are. And we had the loveliest talk and they said, come out to lunch with us afterwards. And so I'd sort of had this connection with them. They are such beautiful people. And then someone had actually requested this for Case File. And so because I'm doing these podcasts for Case File Presents and the Case File host said to me, "Uh, would you do Sarah? And I said, oh, my God, I would love to do Sarah because of these connections and I would absolutely do that to honour her parents. Mm. Yeah, interesting. God, there's so many avenues there I'd like because what I'd love to ask you is who is that case file presenter because I listen to that <laughs> all the time and I think what I a fantastic carrot to dangle that nobody knows anything about him, you know. I know. Oh, and you know what, so no clever. one wants to know. Like his... It was just something that he decided to do at the beginning, and then his uh, fans. If you, if anyone even mentions that they know uh, who he is, they're like, "Don't you tell us?" Because uh, they're so worried that he'll stop making the podcast if his identity becomes known. And it's something that uh, it just adds to the mystique of it, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, because, uh, you know, you and I, for instance, if we do a podcast, we're almost open books, you know. They know all about us. Yeah. So there's not that intrigue. Yeah. But with him, it's, oh, gee, he does a great job. So anyway, listen, Vicky, I think we'd uh, we'd better uh, finish off and I've got a feeling you'll come back because I think there's a lot more to Vicky Petratus than what we've uh, heard. Am I saying your name right, Petratus or Petratus? You are. You are Petratus, yeah. Petratus. Oh, God, when I opened up, I was thinking Petratus. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, but anyway. No, you did it really well. It, I think I'll leave it with Vicky <laughs> or Vic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but uh, thank you so much, uh, Vic. And uh, would you come back because I think there's a lot more. To Vicky than uh, what we've heard. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Anytime, Narelle. All right. Well, thank you again, Vicky. And uh, just a plug. So your podcast. It's on its way. It's not finished. It's not finished yet. So I will be finished. I'm recording the final episode uh, this week. And so, look, I don't know how long it may take to process them, but this year, it'll be out this year sometime. And and this is with Case File? Yeah, this will be another Case File Presents one. Yeah. Okay. And you've also got your, what's your latest book? Uh, my latest book is Police Stories. That came out at the end of last year and I just found out it sold out. So it's going into reprint 
and the publisher wants another one. So um, keeps me busy. That's great, Vicky. All right, again, thank you. You have a, a lovely day, a lovely night, and thanks for your time again. Thanks, Narelle. It's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com